Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, Berlin-based Irish journalist Derek Scully discusses his book, The Best Catholics in the World. The moderator is broadcaster and writer Rachel English. The episode was recorded via Zoom on the 2nd of October 2021. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us for today's Dublin Festival of History event, The Best Catholics in the World, Derek Scally in conversation with Rachel English. The Dublin Festival of History is an annual free festival brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. Our speakers today are Derek Scally and Rachel English. Derek Scally is the author of The Best Catholics in the World, The Irish, The Church and The End of a Special Relationship. He has written for the Irish Times since 2000 and is currently based in Berlin. The Best Catholics in the World is his first book. Rachel English is a journalist and writer. She is a presenter for Morning Ireland on RTE Radio 1 and her latest book, The Paper Bracelet, has been published by Hatchet UK. Without further ado, let me hand you over to Derek and Rachel. Thank you. The book is called The Best Catholics in the World. Derek Scully, it's a pleasure to talk to you about this book. It's it's a thoughtful book, an insightful book, and it is in many ways very personal. What prompted you to write it? A niggle. I I realised I was carrying around this niggle with me for many years. I've been in Berlin now for 20 years. And going back and forth to Ireland, it was, you know, it's a bit like the nature documentary, the stop motion photography. I could see Ireland changing, but always with these gaps. So I almost felt on the one hand, I'm losing a bit of contact with the day-to-day life, but I have this new perspective that I didn't have before. And this perspective I have is, is Germany. And Germany has basically made coming to terms with its past, its superpower almost. Um, so I had this niggle about Catholic Ireland and how it was disappearing and the people who would have shaped my Irish Catholic childhood. You know, I probably had one of the, I'm, I'm, I was born in 1977, so I probably had one of the last of the, the Irish Catholic childhood. So I, on the one hand, I could see something disappearing over the horizon. And on the other hand, living in Germany made me aware of the need to continually interrogate your past because it's always in your present. It's shaping you today. The question is just, do you admit that or not? So when I put those two together, I realized I really am, I really have lots of questions about Catholic Ireland, um, being a former altar boy, growing up in a parish on the north side of Dublin, um, going to Catholic school and so on. But I don't really have any way to understand or to deal with it. So I went looking for a book, didn't find the book. I said, well, I guess I'll, I'll have to write the book myself, but definitely a niggle. And it's something I found when I was researching the book. A lot of people have that. We all There's a lot of people in Ireland who are just aren't sure, very ambivalent about the past, but it's just such a toxic and burdensome past that it's quite understandable that when people have mortgages and school runs and GAA and stuff to worry about in their everyday life, do we really have the time, capacity, appetite for dealing with it? And I just said, well, here goes, I'll try. So that's where the book came from. You write at one point fairly early on that you can now see how many of the toxic elements that you remember were as much Irish as Catholic. In in what way? It took me years before I left Ireland, after I left Ireland, before I realised just how Irish the Catholicism in Ireland is. I mean, growing up, we're taught two things. One, it's the universal church. It's the same around the world. It's global. Um, But on the other hand, we're sort of subtly told that we somehow are the origin of the species or 
Catholicism in its most full, fully formed state. You know, because of this continuity, there's very little in Ireland that is continuous, but Catholicism is continuous to the fifth century, to the present. I mean, I, I refer to myself in the book as a grappling Catholic. I mean, I walked away from Catholicism, the church and institution out of disgust, like most people in Ireland. But then I found myself growing here and I was suddenly struck by just how German it was. If you go to a church here, I, the first time I went to a church in Germany, I thought I was in a Protestant service because of the songbooks and the, the formality of it all. And then I realized that Catholicism succeeds because it adapts. It adapts to every culture. And just as the Catholicism I experience here is quite intellectual, quite self, it's based on self-responsibility, it's only then that I realized that the Catholicism I experienced, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, in Ireland, it was very um, pastoral, I suppose would be the neutral way of describing it. It was very close to the people. The priest is very much providing comfort and providing, he's very much there, part of the community. But there wasn't a lot of thinking going on. And I realized then that something happened. Irish Catholicism was sort of frozen in time at some point. And it either was never very intellectual or it just it, at some point the, uh, the Irish Catholic Church educated people like me beyond what it was, the level it wanted us to be at or the level it felt was a Catholicism suited to Ireland. So I realized I'm Again, it's just a, a personal thing, but I felt intellectually my mind was thinking about certain things, but the Catholicism on offer in Ireland wasn't really uh, generally providing answers to that. So most people would just walk away and why wouldn't they? But then I realized that, well, this is what worked for so long in Ireland. And I understand why a large institution would keep trying to produce the same thing that it's always been producing. But I would say it wasn't fit for purpose for quite a long time. And Irish Catholicism satisfied Irish needs. Irish Catholicism is as much Irish as Catholic. And once we accept that, that, you know, this notion we're the best Catholics in the world, it's Irish Catholicism is what Irish people wanted. It always was. And everything good and bad that arose out of that is based on our needs. And if you go back to the start of that process, in a way, if you go back to the mid 19th century, it was in many ways what people felt that they needed. Can you bring us back to those times and to how Catholicism started to change in Ireland? Yeah, I think for me, one of the most striking things, we all think we sort of intrinsically, we've absorbed all of this Catholic stuff, but I was quite shocked at how little I actually knew about the history of Catholicism in Ireland. We just kind of hear, you know, St. Patrick comes to Ireland, monks and, and nuns go out to Europe and re-Christianize Europe, um, penal laws, terrible, um, suffering for the faith, sticking with the faith, the faith and Irish nationalism merge, the famine, the priests are a huge, you know, that's, and then we sort of, we arrive in the present. That's kind of the Irish Catholic narrative I got growing up. And what I just didn't realize, I was so shocked that in 1850, Irish Catholicism was effectively um, rebranded. It, it still carried the same name and the same people were there, but it was a very different institution. It was the work of Paul Cullen, um, an Irish man who went out to Rome age 17, rose very high in the ranks in Rome and was an ultramontanist. He really believed the Pope was the centre of everything, absolute loyalty, absolute deference. Um, the, the notion of papal infallibility is partly Paul Cullen's work. And he came back to Ireland in 1850 after the devastation of the famine, a country on its knees. And he realised we we need to help these people, we need to provide. And he moved in quite quickly with institutions, brought in religious orders. So all the schools, all the churches you see 
all the hospitals that all started back then. But the flip side of that was he created a very, a very particular type of Catholicism, which I think survives to this day, and which I think is starting to disappear before our eyes. It was a very top-down, heavy, um, authoritarian, also deference-demanding Catholicism. It was very thin-skinned, um, tetchy Catholicism, defensive. It was very, he was very wary of the world. I mean, he had seen you know, the Republican march into Rome, he'd seen the disappearance of the papal states. For him, Catholicism was living in at war with modernity. And I think a lot of that fed into the Irish Catholicism we got. So you had this mix of comfort and deference demanding. And um, when I saw that, you know, think he brought in things like the Sacred Heart and First Fridays and all these things that we think are timeless Irish traditions were imported. Um, like a lot of the statues they would have imported from Italy back then, he started building churches and provided people with so much, but demanded quite a lot at the same time. And people went with it. They were utterly, I mean, after the famine, I mean, the degradation, the, the humiliation. And then here comes somebody with a with a salvation narrative. And um, in an era before psychotherapy, this must have been very attractive. It must have been hugely comforting for people. And you can see um, uh, you can see images, artist images of the Synod of Thurlis, which is where all of this revolution happened, this re reformation of Irish Catholicism in a way. Um, uh, and you see people sitting, kneeling in the dirt, watching these bishops pass by and the sort of the rebirth of our, the Irish Catholic Church. So that's what I think is dying today. And um, maybe it's because I'm not living in Ireland. I'm not really too sentimental with that. It served its purpose. It did some great things. It did some terrible things. And now that its time has passed. But the Irish Catholic narrative um, is far longer than 1850 to today. I mean, the, the 1850 cutoff point, though, I suppose is interesting because while we can count the number of famine dead or the numbers who left, it is very hard for us to measure now how traumatised people mm. must have been in those years and how desperate they must have been to cleave to something. Completely. And what I was struck by and what was really heartbreaking for me was just how much, um, for the first time, the Catholic Church in, in the form of Paul Cullen and so on, he created something that Irish people could be proud of from within the Irish people because he, I mean, Irish priests had always been there and through the penal laws, they had comforted people, um, but he created a new class. And so what you saw, a new class of priests, of bishops, he, he made them dress properly and gave them proper houses to live in. And what, what I almost saw was, you know, people in the town like Turles or elsewhere, they could point to the presbytery and say, you see, we've got a big house as well. It's just as good as that Anglo-Irish guy down the road. Um, and what you saw is that slowly as the, as the British were retreating or the Anglo-Irish were being burned out of the country, um, the priests and the bishops just occupied that position that was the, the vacancy was left and they filled it quite effectively and they became the princes and they became the center. They might've been the only person in the village along with the lawyer or the doctor who could read or write. So they became something, but the pride that these were our people um, and, you know, that's completely understandable. But from today, looking back, mm -hmm. um, I, I met a nun along the way and she said, you know, I, I said, how do you feel about the attitude towards the Catholic church now? And she said, it's an old anger. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I think many people in our realize we put these people up on pedestals, the pedestals left vacant by the retreating English. We put them up on pedestals and we shouldn't have. And um, so it was, she saw very much as a two-way transaction. And we're now feeling rather 
unsure about the decision to do that. But unless you understand the trauma and the devastation of the post-famine period and the need that was being filled, um, it's very hard to understand why would people be so different towards the Catholic Church. So this was all of what I was trying. And this was all quite new to me. And um, it was, yeah, it, it, I had huge empathy for people coming out of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Why wouldn't you go along with what the Catholic Church was offering? It was providing progress. It was very um, fast moving. It was bringing in educational and um, medical developments that the, the state certainly wasn't in a position to deliver. But of course, we all know in hindsight, the cost yeah. of this church-state alliance. And I suppose for many people, that really is a question to grapple with. The question of why the state allowed the Catholic Church to acquire so much power, to have so much power in so many key areas, in particular when it came to schools and to the provision of health care. It's interesting. Um, when I hear the debates on church and state, I... Um, I always ask the question, maybe we're looking at it wrong. Maybe back then the church and the state were two separate entities, but what did they have in common? They were like two circles and around them was Ireland. So the church, you know, and, and when I was interviewing people, not many people were quite clear, you know, what was the church? What was the state? Where were, where did we exist vis-a-vis -vis these two groups? And um, so I think we're actually still not quite sure. Why did the church filled with Irish citizens um, take over healthcare from the state filled, you know, occupied by Irish citizens. So why did one group of Irish people give power to another group of Irish people with the permission of the population? Because I don't remember any huge revolutions, people saying this is the wrong thing to do. So, um, and, and I see this today. So just in answer to your question, it's why did they do it? I guess they felt it was the right thing to do, but perhaps they didn't feel as we do today that these are separate Things they all just felt this is one big thing. This is the this is Irish society, and um, at the time, I suppose they were probably the best people, the best suited. I mean, these religious orders were extremely educated, and they were coming in from continental Europe with the latest technology or the latest ideas in healthcare. So, um, and I guess looking at looking at the Irish state we have now and the government we have now and some of the mentalities we have now, there's often an idea: can we get something for cheap? something good that won't cost us much yeah. money. And that's that's kind of yeah. the, the, you could call it the Faustian pact that we uh, agreed. And I would say we, you know, when people talk about the state or the church, I would say, do you mean us? Because mm -hmm. as soon as we start getting into us and them, we're sort of distancing ourselves from this. Our grandparents and great-grandparents went along with this. Some of them might have even been priests. Some of them might have been government ministers or politicians. So um, I think we went, we went along with that because it seemed like the best idea at the time. Obviously the shadow of abuse hangs over the book. And the book isn't entirely about abuse, but because we, we witnessed so many scandals in recent years, be, be those the sexual abuse of children by, by members of the clergy, or be it the people who were, were forced to stay against their will in institutions. I mean, it, it's very hard to get away from all of that throughout the book. And as you said just a moment ago, you, you also look at how we fit into this picture, that it's not just about church and state, it, it, it's about all of us. Um, how did you go about tackling those subjects? Because, because as I say, I mean, there, there are so many, there's so many different elements at play here. It was very difficult because on the one hand, it is only one part of the story. I mean, Irish Catholicism goes back to 431, we say, AD. Um, and yet 
it defines the story. This is the end point of this particular section. Some people would say it is the end point of the story. Other people will say it's the end point of this section of Irish Catholicism. Um, and I don't know which, which is correct. Um, but so to exclude it would be wrong, but to allow it dominate would also be would be distorting. So I, I decided I needed to find key elements or key people who summed up a lot of the best and the worst of this story. Um, so um, I met with Paddy Doyle, who wrote The God Squad um, over 30 years ago. Um, and I met with Mary Collins, with whom I had a link to the priest who abused her later on when she finally took him to court. Um, he was the priest in our parish. And then I sought out Cardinal Sean Brady, um, who was sort of the pride of, of County Calvin when he became the head of the Catholic Church in Ireland. And then when the revelations of Brendan Smith and what he knew 30 years previously came out, um, he fell. So I figured these were some of the, and then I went along to the um, Magdalene's Day at, in the Oris, uh, I think it was 2018. And I just picked out individual events, which I felt, I mean, I couldn't go into some of the residential, the uh, the Ryan report, the homes they looked at, and the mother and baby homes report. That was a, a that was still a live issue when I was researching the book. So I just tried to pick individual issues, but I tried to find people to talk to and to talk to myself um, because I wasn't interested in doing another journalist outrage, rehash, finger pointing. I was trying to talk to people as long as they're still there. I mean, Sean Brady's in his 80s. Paddy Doyle has since died. Um, uh, so while it, I wasn't trying to do a historical work or sociological work, um, I was just trying to talk to people while they're still here and, and see what they talk, but actually talk to them themselves. And I, when I met them all, I think this is perhaps the bit I tried to do differently. I really tried to, you know, um, ultimate positive regard. I tried to sit with people and say, tell me how it looked from you. For instance, with, with Sean Brady, I mean, there are many interviews for, for the, many people know Sean Brady, but he was he interviewed children who were abused by Father Brendan Smith in the 70s, filed a report, it disappeared for 20 years and Brendan Smith went on to abuse. Whether or not um, that was a, he could have done more is a matter of hot debate. But when I spoke with him, he's been interviewed several times and always in a quite confrontational way back in the day when these revelations came out. I was just interested in how did he think and how does he think about it now? But you don't get that by attacking. And um, so I met with him five times. So I tried in all of the interviews, but particularly with him, the new element I tried to bring in was empathy. And I think um, we've reached a stage in the debate now where a lot of legal confrontations that had to happen have now happened. But if we continue in that mold, in that gear, will we get anything more significant? I would say maybe we need to continue where it's necessary, but also bring in the empathetic attitude, not sympathy, um, actually empathy, actually really trying to understand, not to condone, but actually really trying to understand how Sean Brady saw the world and why he didn't feel free to report or to keep at his superiors so that Brennan Smith was taken um, taken out of circulation. So um, again, so in answer to your question, I, I picked individual people who I felt were really deeply thinking about this, and I tried a different approach, which which was empathy as opposed to confrontation. I was particularly struck by the chapter in which you go to the event to commemorate and to mark the Magdalene women, the, the women mm. who lived in the laundries, which you mentioned there. In one way, it was a joyous day. It was good to see people being recognised. Mm. But there was also just this sturdy seam of sadness running through it as well. And, and I found I found it quite an uncomfortable read almost in, in a way. 
Yes, I felt really uncomfortable that day as well. I'm still very ambivalent about it because on the one hand, they did everything right. This was the campaigners who had worked with these women who had been locked up in these laundries for often the most ridiculous of reasons. They were finally getting their due. They were getting recognition in the highest house in the land from the politicians, but from our president, Michael D. Higgins. And he delivered an excellent speech. And, you know, this is not your shame. This is our shame as a people. And and the people in there, many of the women were just delighted that, they, you know, they knew this wasn't their fault. But to actually hear somebody else saying, not only is it not your fault, we're taking, we're lifting it off. There was hugely a cathartic event for many of the women there and for the organizers. It was a remarkable achievement. And yet I just said something isn't right here. And as the day wore on, they eventually moved from the hours back into the city centre and people were clapping for them. And I know for people who were there clapping as they went into the mansion house, this is important. They wanted to be there. A lot of women were there showing their support. So I really felt I felt um, a sense of unease that I was even questioning their motives. But I, I was because... And eventually some one of the women, because not all the women who were there were happy with this event. They, eventually one woman, she put it, she summed it up for me. She said, who is this for? Um, and because she said, we still haven't gotten so many of the things that were promised us. And you know, um, everyone seemed to be tiptoeing around the issue. Like, who put these women in there? Was it just a, a small troop of, a crack troop of people who were just ripping women off the streets and locking them up? Nobody was addressing the issue of, of clan liability, that in Ireland, in a time, families had to decide which which is it to be, our reputation in the village or our pregnant daughter? Um, and who were the people who were forcing families to make those decisions? There was no discussion of that. Um, it was the state apologizing to these people. But I said, on whose behalf? And um, I definitely felt there's a need for people in Ireland to reach closure on this issue, but wanting to achieve closure on something like the Magdalene Laundries is completely the wrong approach because it's a process. The Magdalene Laundries were not institutions. They were a process, a process of removing people from the narrative that do not suit how we view ourselves. And um, it was a containment facility for shame. And um, I said, if unless you understand the process and that your role in that process, clapping people on the street is about as useless, useless as clapping the NHS people, you know, give them, pay the nurses, acknowledge um, the responsibility for the past. And this gets to the issue of my book. I'm not blaming people for the past, past that they may not have been even born for, the past they may not have had any influence over. What I'm encouraging though to do is to have a responsibility for that past and to view the past as like a continuum of knowing I described in the book where here you have the victims and survivors, here you have the perpetrators and the enablers. And everyone in Ireland is somewhere, somewhere between there. And is there a way that we can encourage people to reflect on their own lives, reflect on their own choices, reflect on their own decisions, reflect on things they did or didn't do, said or didn't say that might have ended up one of these women being put away? And it's still a struggle even right up to today. And um, so the, the, the day, the Magdalene's day was, um, was problematic for me. But this is, again, not to... Um, many people found it a liberating day. So, um, but I found there were not a lot of women who didn't make it into any of the media the next day who really weren't very sure about this at all. And many people said, I'm still not moving back to Ireland. Ireland, you know, Ireland isn't taking me seriously. So that they didn't suit our narrative. They didn't make it into the next day's media coverage, but they make it into the book.
There are so many questions when it comes to the institutions, not just the Magdalene Laundries, but I suppose what you might call their, their sister institutions, the mother and baby homes, and, and also, you know, the many other places there were, in particular, the industrial schools. Um, an awful lot of those questions remain unanswered. And I suppose this was the year that many people felt that their questions in relation to, to mother and baby homes might be answered and, and they came away disappointed. Yes, because we never defined our terms. We've spent 20, 25 years looking at our past, but nobody actually knows what exactly are we looking at. And I'll just give you an example. When I interviewed um, Yvonne Murphy, who was responsible for the Murphy Report into the Dublin Archdiocese and, and another diocese, the Diocesan Report, but most notably now for the Mother and Baby Home Report, I also interviewed Sean Ryan for the Ryan Report. So that was um, residential homes um, for children. And I realized they were talking about the same subject in very different ways. So eventually I got out a notebook and I did Venn diagrams and I did circles. And I said, so here's a circle representing the Irish state. Here's the circle representing the Catholic Church. And here's a circle with the people. I said, where do these people, how do they exist vis-a-vis -vis each other? And um, Sean Ryan said, you know, the church and the state were very overlapping. Um, and Yvonne Murphy said, oh, the Catholic Church is over here and the state is here, very separate. And I said, really? Um, we, we, so we've, we've spent the last 20 years looking at this. And we can't even agree what do we mean when we say church? What do we mean when we say state? And how do we, as people um, who elect the state, you know, as in terms of the executive, the government, and are going to mass on the Sunday, many or did in the past. So um, I just found it staggering that, the re I think a main reason is we, we haven't defined our terms. We have a very ad hoc approach. These, 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 um, these uh, inquiries, they all look very formal and formalized, but they're actually just busking their way through. Uh, and the, the aggravation now towards those reports is often a lot because a lot of this wasn't formalized. So people are looking at these reports in hindsight saying their methodology was flawed and their approach and their editing is very selective and subjective. But if you haven't actually defined what you're going to do and how you're going to do it or, or what standards you want to apply to, uh, in hindsight, that's all very fine. But we could have told we, we could have known this ahead of time. And I think why are we why is there this ad hoc, as I would see it, approach or pass is because we refuse to accept the basic point that we were all there. And just because we were all there doesn't mean that we all had responsibility or we were all to blame. But Everyone who's there, presenteeism is the issue. And I start my book and I end my book on the assumption that we're all there. So let's not have that discussion. Let's not pretend that we weren't. We're all in that Catholic Ireland. What do you remember? What do I remember? What could you have done but you didn't? What did I not do what I could have? And unless we accept that basic point of reality, that's for me is non-negotiable on our past. You know, um, in German, they call it like dancing around the hot porridge. You know, you actually don't want to, you don't want to get, get back right in. You saw it in the response to the report. Um, the Michal Martin and other politicians stood up in the doll and said, this is our shame, not yours. Um, we all were responsible. And then we had um, independent TD standing up saying, I'm not responsible. I don't know anyone who's responsible. And those women certainly aren't responsible. So she was effectively putting herself and her family and people she knew on the same level as these women. Um, and I've seen, so if everyone's responsible, nobody's responsible, or if nobody's responsible, nobody's responsible. Those seem to be the two responses to the mother and baby home report. Um, because 
we just refuse to accept the, the simple fact because it's just too burdensome. Why would you, you know, walk away? People seem to think walking away is the answer. But Paddy Doyle, one of the abuse survivors, I spoke to, he seems, he said, that's what annoys me most. He said that people think by not going to mass anymore, that they've somehow, that's their contribution. Uh, he said, it's far more interesting and more sustainable to look at where are the Paddy's today being abused and in what context. Mary Collins said the same. She said, I can't be helped. I was abused in 1960 in Our Lady's Hospital for Sick Children in Crumlin. I can't be helped anymore. But are you, if you really are as concerned and as shocked about my abuse as you claim to be, what are you doing today for people who can be helped? And that's where things start to get really awkward. You know, and many people in my journey spoke about um, direct provision, and how will we explain direct provision to people in 20 years' time? We know it's there. We know kind of what's going on. We can only assume that those structures are as ripe for abuse as structures in, in our Catholic past. But this sense of disconnect, that this is somehow our state, this is somehow happening because we either want it to happen or certainly don't disagree with what's going on. You know? um, and those are the issues. Yeah, another question um, before we leave the issue of institutional abuse is the question of you often hear people say, well, there were similar institutions in other countries and there were. But in most places, not on the scale that we had mm. in Ireland, and certainly they didn't tend to retain them for so long. I mean, it's not that long ago since the last laundry closed down and since the last mm. mother and baby home closed. And that question remains, you know, why did these institutions persist? I think they persisted because not enough people wanted them to go, to not persist. Um, somebody said along the way, and a former Irish Times colleague of mine who went into the last laundry, Sean McDermott Street, um, and the nun there said to him, you know, the women who are in here, their families don't come to see them. And she said, the only reason I'm here is because these women have nowhere to go. You could argue why were they there in the first place. But at the end, at least, Irish society didn't want these women, even at the end. Um, and Irish society, I mean, people like us, people, families like mine, we didn't want these people. And um, why it persisted? I mean, the only reason that at the end that laundries died is because the, 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 the washing machine came along. And they were industrial washing machines were far more useful laundries for um, hotels and bed and breakfasts. Um, so why did they persist for so long? I think there's something about our colonial past. I see it over and over again. We don't actually feel responsible for what's going on in our society. You know, we have we talk with the church and the state. I said, and we never refer to ourselves. You know, we are responsible for the government we get. We elect them. Um, and I think with the with the church institutions, there was this um, again. I'm I, I'm 44, so I don't claim to be an expert at that time. But there was a sense of inertia towards what the way it was, and it must always be this way, and you don't question. And that lasted for a very long time into the 1990s. Um, I mean, when I saw the Magdalene Women film, I was in Berlin. It must have been 99 or 2000 around that time. No, 2001. Um, and I sat there and watched this film. And the last scene, as the credits go, is the uh, the last laundry closed, I think, in 1993. And the lights came up, and I can still remember my face flushed red with shame. And my friends all turned to me and they said, what? 1993? Um, and then they they didn't ask this the questions we asked, you know, and they said, why did people allow that to happen? That was mm. the question in their minds. And that's the question we tend not to ask in Ireland. And instead we disappear into down these rabbit holes of what about us. And well, you know, what about here? They had this, what about there? Mm. And we'll do anything 
to avoid actually discussing why did we want this or why did we feel it couldn't be different? Because once you start asking those questions, you actually are into, those are questions you could ask about Ireland today. Why do we want the housing situation that we have? But that's getting, you know, so for my book is while it's about Catholic Ireland and its past, um, the, the, the dynamics and the sense of um, power or lack of power um, uh, they continue regardless and you can stop going to church you can you can demolish churches um, but the dynamics in the foundations they continue and the deference uh, today whether it's to tech on, tech companies or to hospital consultants I mean the the dynamics are still there as you talk about dynamics and power, I mean, I was struck reading the book that in one way or another, the issue of class comes up mm. again and again, not just in terms of the institutions, but also in terms of the way priests suspected of abusing mm-hmm. young children were moved from one parish to another. And you also talk about your own experience growing up about how girls from one particular area were treated horrifically, like dirt, you say, uh, or a woman says that to you, a woman you're interviewing mm-hmm. and even more. And it is, again, it, it, it's one of those issues that we can be very uncomfortable discussing in Ireland, but, but it's hard hard to avoid in this book the issue of social background indeed because um i think it's the you know i'm not an academic but i think that's the great unexplored issue i mean there's been a lot of focus perhaps even still too little focus on on victims and survivors and particularly you know the church attitudes to women and women's bodies but we've saw through the uh, the abortion referendum a lot more discussion or people are at least more familiar with those discussions you can always have more discussion but the class issue we, we don't touch and i touched on it briefly in my parish it's uh, saint eden more saint monica's it's a working class parish on the north side of dublin built in the 1960s i grew up on the edge of it but it was mostly corporation houses um, but the women who were there, who were in the house with this abusing priest, Paul McGuinness, you know, he knew exactly which families he needed to go for. It was the family with eight, the 10, the 12 children. Um, and even in the schools, they said the nuns, they could just sense who was who and they would treat people differently. And they were trained. They were, this is how Ireland operated. They this was this was acceptable. And it's quite uncomfortable now. I don't, I, I'm not living in Ireland anymore. I'm not a, an expert on this, but if I was to the next stage of historical questioning or interrogation, perhaps it's happening at the moment, would be would be the class issue. Because I think once you crack that, um and you you're then forced to look at the pedestal situation. Um you know, a lot of priests and nuns would have come out of a middle class situation. Why did Ireland, become, Irish Catholicism, become so sex obsessed and turn, I think Joe Lee called it, turn sex into a snare? Because middle class Ireland didn't want to fall back into the famine, didn't want to be subdividing land between one heir and another heir and another heir. So they, they demanded a, a, a theology in Ireland where sex was a snare. And this middle class thinking, um, that, that theology would have been very damaging, as we see with the with the might and laundries and so on. Um, but that middle class continued through the 20th century. And um, and that, you know, the Irish Catholic middle class, a lot of them would still be churchgoers. So the um the middle class have a lot to answer for. Um, because I never really, I mean, I grew up in Northside Dublin in the 80s and 90s. I never remember hearing about too many abusing priests in Rathgar. You know, maybe there were, um, but if, if I was to do a little map of, of the Archdiocese of Dublin and put pins in, you hear an awful lot about Ballyfermot and even more. Um, so, you know, maybe they just had 
more watchful parents. Maybe they just could afford lawyers, so priests knew not to try it on. But the notion of sensing weakness, who can we prey on? Um, so the class consciousness was always there in many of the abusers. That's a common pattern. Um, but also in terms of power, um, that people in, in, in a parish like even more would have had, had absolutely no sense of agency. So you cannot blame them for their own abuse. And at no point in the book do I do do I do that. But um, sense of agency, the sense of class, I mean, these are issues that continue and even outside of the Catholic context. In the book, you also speak to quite a few people who maintain a strong faith and who are involved with the church in one way or another. Tell us about that experience, because some of the stories are really fascinating. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I think one of the most interesting stories about Catholicism in Ireland today is not the people who've left, but the people who've stayed. Mm. And I often feel they don't get the respect they deserve because not everyone who stayed in the Catholic Church is stupid. Not everyone who has religious belief is stupid. Many people, as I said earlier, a lot of what we got as religious education and so on, to my mind, was actually quite primitive. So to walk away from that saying, well, that's just ridiculous. I agree, it is ridiculous. But the notion that uh, there's, a, there's a Catholic intellectual, that you can have a, an interesting debate in your mind between faith and doubt, which is something that's often in my mind, I find that quite interesting. Um, but the, there's a lot of people in the Irish Catholic Church who feel that way. Um, but there's an awful lot of people who just have a very, they have their own faith. They have their own relationship with God. They use this to improve their lives. I have lots of aunts and uncles who have this. They don't, they've also walked away from the institution. They're still physically in the building, but they're not going to take any nonsense from priests and bishops either. But it's important to them and it grounds them. And I would say it has improved Ireland um, tremendously. And as it disappears, I think you can see a new harshness in Ireland that um, uh, considering the circumstances shouldn't be there. We've walked away from this source of harshness, the Catholic Church. And the course I attended, um, it's in the it's called Pathways. It's offered in the Dublin Archdiocese, I think around the country as well. And it just allows adults ask. It's like religious class for adults, but not as annoying as I remember religious class to be. <laughs> it's very much a discussion. People will be presented with an issue. They will read about it and they will discuss it. And I found it quite intriguing um, because let's, at the end of the day, Catholicism and Christianity has been around for 2000 years. It has survived for a reason, just because the Irish many Irish have turned their back on it. I don't think Christianity cares if the Irish are there or not, but these people do care and that's why they're there. And I thought, hmm, if, if Christianity or Catholicism is to survive in Ireland in any way, it will be in this context. It's adults approaching religious questions or questions of identity, uh, philosophical questions, existential questions, but building on their childlike knowledge. Most of us have a childlike knowledge of religion. I think that's what makes it so uncomfortable to a lot of us, that the, the language and the terms we have are sort of stuck in our confirmation suit in the wardrobe. That's the last time most of us engage with it, whereas this course was offering people new ideas, adult reading uh, for their level so that they could actually engage with this. And many of the people I spoke to there, they said their friends are fascinated. They do the course and then their friends call them and ask for questions about course materials and they're giving them pointers and places they can go to read and with priests and nuns and religious disappearing this is the future so it's mature it's people you don't have to do any of this if you don't want to anymore thank god you could say but if you do want to engage you have to do it yourself you can't expect somebody to come with a ladle and just ladle it in you have to actually do it yourself so in a way that almost relates to what i experienced in germany sort of the, the luther effect you know if you feel the need for faith in your life, 
it's self-responsibility. You have to be, it's sort of like a self-catering religious holiday. You have to be able to cook and provide for yourself. So this notion of, uh, of, of a fully catered holiday, which was Irish Catholicism, that's past its, um, past its best before date. And this, what I met, these, this course um, pathways, definitely sort of for me at least if there is to be a future that's partly it and I was in that regard I was struck um, by something you said quite early on in the book you say in a few short decades Ireland has gone from a country where you couldn't escape religion whether silent pervasive devotion or rigid doctrinal practice to a place where faith dare not speak its name are we scared of religion I think a lot of people um feel it is completely um it has completely undermined itself. They're not as scared of it, but they feel um, organized religion in Ireland has undermined itself. So just let it collapse in on itself and walk away. And that's completely legitimate. And to have, a, to have had the experience that we have had, it's a completely natural experience. But um, I sometimes wonder if Ireland is in the stage regarding religion, if we're sort of in the angry teenager phase where we point at priests and bishops say you've ruined my life I hate you and walks out the door and slams the door the question is what happens when you become you get into your 20s and 30s and you realize well my parents actually had a very difficult time you know and they had this and considering this and consider and you start Mm -hmm. to get a more complex view Uh, and most people know that most priests and religious in Ireland um have made huge contributions and then we get the, oh yes well he's fine he's fine. yeah but if all these people are fine well then is there anything they're, they've clearly devoted their lives to something and they're not stupid people um so what what was it and to re-engage i think a lot of the debate in ireland at the moment is just insecurity and looking at the institutional church in ireland i don't there's so much that is indefensible i have the luxury of living outside the country um, but if I lived in Ireland, I'm not sure if I would be in any way religious, and I certainly wouldn't want to have anything to do with the institutional church as it is at the moment. Um, uh, but the idea of, I, I live in Germany, there's a newspaper, once a week has a wonderful page, it's called um, Glauben und Zweifeln, Belief and Doubt. And it's just, it doesn't sort of proscribe that you must believe, and it doesn't prescribe that any sensible person today must not. And it just asks questions, it just puts religious belief in in its place in the context of life. Um, and I find that tremendously liberating because you can then just, it, it can't hurt us anymore and being intrigued by it. Um, so it, it um, again, I'm young enough to have uh, not been too damaged by any of this. So as I said, the Catholicism my experience in Germany is a bit more, let's say on the intellectual end of the spectrum. So I find it intriguing. But in Ireland, it's just a nervousness. I think there's an awful lot of confirmation kids out there who are now 30, 40, 50 years old but their, their, their way of speaking, they have problems that I think, uh, anxiety issues that I think having a place to reflect once a week, whether it's a yoga studio or a church, is always good. Um, but not having, there are needs, but they struggle to articulate those needs. And if you can't actually, if you don't actually have the language of faith or religious belief or religion as a historical phenomenon, you're struggling. And I see a lot of people struggling. And if you found something else to replace that, that works for you, whether it's yoga or the gym or crossfit by all means um but there's an awful lot of people there have nothing and the new iphone isn't really going to get rid of your anxiety and so i think we've gone through a consumer's phase and i think looking in on ireland from the outside we seem to be entering a new phase i'll be intrigued what that is but um it has to do with self-responsibility and um i, I find it hard to imagine that after since the fifth century that 
it, it will vanish, but um, the, the numbers speak for itself. If it is to survive, it would be because people want it to, and they will take matters into their own hands. Did the project, did researching the book, interviewing people, writing the book, did it change your views in any way? On? On anything to do with, with the Catholic Church. Um, but again, what is the Catholic Church? Do we mean the priests and the bishops? Do we mean the people in the pews or the people who used to be in the pews? Um, I think, did it change my view on Ireland? I think it gave me a tremendous sense of sadness um, for, reminded me of just how tough Irish history has been um, for many people. Um, but it also informed me that a lot of the suffering was co-opted by the Catholic Church in the 19th century to create a victim narrative, a salvation victim narrative, which was then merged with the Irish nationalist um, campaign, which was tremendously effective. But we now have a situation where we have, um, if you question any of that victim narrative um, in universities, you know, students who have nothing to do with the Catholic Church will sort of attack you and say, you know, if somebody says, well, the penal laws was not exactly the Holocaust, there, was, there were deaths, but it was nothing on the scale. It's portrayed this way in many, in many frames of reference, but it isn't. If you do that, you can, uh, university professors told me you can be attacked by your students because they've swallowed, they don't realize, but they've swallowed a 19th century version of our past, which is Catholic. We need to pull it all apart. We've separated the Irish national identity from Catholic identity, but what have we replaced it with? We have separated Catholic values out of our daily lives, but what have we replaced it with? So uh, I learned a lot about the past, but I also learned an awful, it, it helped me understand a little why I sense Ireland is adrift at the moment with the big questions. What do we actually want as a society and why do we feel powerless to achieve it? And when you realize that so much of the Japanese knot root of Catholicism is still in this top layer of the soil, our minds have been shaped by this. So at the very least, we need to understand how it got control of our minds and how much of it is still there. So I have a huge sense of compassion for Ireland that I perhaps as a, you know, the emigrant leaves sometimes with baggage. So I'm much more at peace with Ireland. But what I'm slightly, slightly uh, nervous about is the younger generations who feel they just can't understand it. They've never been inside a church. Catholicism is no, not a frame of reference for them. And so they, they reject it. And I was very worried for a long time that um, you know, you have one camp in Ireland who says Catholic Ireland wasn't as bad as everyone claims. That's the media. Then you have another camp saying, yes, it was. And we walked away and it has nothing to do with us. And then you have this 20, 30 something generation coming up who feel this has nothing to do with them. And I say this is from the German experience. This is when the problems begin, because if you sense if you have no sense of ownership of your history or if you reject the non-flattering parts of your history, You've just left a door open for things to happen again. So um, I was quite heartened, actually. Sally Rooney was promoting her new book in Der Spiegel, a German magazine. And she she was asked about, you know, what, were you as much attacked for your book as, um, let's say, you know, with all the, the sex and so in it, as, as, let's say, Sinead O'Connor was attacked back in the 90s. And it was such an interesting question because she said, God, yes, Sinead, it seems like only yesterday she was attacked for pointing at the obvious about the Catholic Church. And we've never really apologize for that she said as a society but she said today we've moved on so far and yet on the other hand we've never really addressed our catholic past in the rush to move on which is completely understandable um we've never as a society i sensed the individual continuum of knowing where were we in that narrative um uh, so i was relieved that 
Sally Rooney was raising this issue because she is a very influential person. And she's suggesting that even 30-somethings have to engage. And who knows, it could be this 30-something this generation or 20-something generation in terms of historical uh, interrogation that they probably are going to be the generation that needs to look at this. So I'd like to think the book is sort of looking back and looking forward because this is where we are in our history, but there's a lot more work to be done on this, but perhaps people can can look back and this book is just as Catholic Ireland was disappearing over, over the horizon. The book is The Best Catholics in the World. Derek Scully, thank you very much for talking thank you, to Rachel. me. Thank you, Rachel. It was a pleasure. I'd like to say a big thank you to Derek and Rachel and to everyone who tuned in to today's Dublin Festival of History event. If you'd like to find out about more events running as part of this year's festival, you can do so on our website, dublinfestivalofhistory.ie, or by checking out our social media channels. I hope you enjoyed today's event and that we'll see you at even more events for the remainder of the festival. Goodbye and thank you again for joining us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter where we're at, at HistFest.